welcome to a brand new edition of the S Factor. It seems like our world, our technological world, is speeding and it's going faster and faster and faster. Every month I bring the science news to you. I cannot believe the amount of developments and technological breakthroughs when it comes to medical or computer technology or astronomy, things that we're finding out about our solar system, our galaxy. This first story I have here is from CNN. It's surprising forbidden planet discovered outside our solar system. Astronomers have found an unusually large planet orbiting a small star, located about 280 light-years from Earth. The unexpected size of the newly discovered world, called TO1525b, has led researchers to call it the Forbidden Planet. About the size of Jupiter, it was spotted by researchers using NASA's Transisting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system, and boy is Jupiter a giant. It is enormous. It captures a lot of asteroids that would otherwise perhaps hit us that are shooting off from that asteroid belt on the outer reaches of our solar system. So Jupiter is a very important planet for us Earthlings here. The planet hunting mission launched in 2018 surveys the light of the nearest and brightest stars to spot dip in starlight, which suggests that those stars have planets orbiting them. The test mission has found thousands of potential planets. The exoplanet orbits a red dwarf called T015205, which is about 40% the size and mass of our sun, and about 5,660 degrees Fahrenheit in temperature compared with the sun's blazing average of 9,980 degrees Fahrenheit. Isn't it just so unthinkable, that temperature? In the summer, if you're outside on a hot summer day and it's over 100 degrees, it's almost unbearable. Can you imagine? We're talking about thousands of degrees Fahrenheit. An M-dwarf star is smaller, cooler, and redder than our sun. These dim stars are some of the most common in the universe. And in recent years, astronomers have discovered that M-dwarf stars are more likely to have planets orbiting them. But astronomers weren't expecting such small stars to host giant planets. And that's exactly what they found when they took a closer look at the TO-15205 planetary system. A study detailing the findings was published Tuesday in the Astronomical Journal. The host star TO-15205 is just about four times the size of Jupiter, yet has somehow managed to form a Jupiter-sized planet, which is quite surprising. So study author Shubham Kemdoya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., in a statement, astronomers have found a few gas giant planets orbiting older M-dwarf stars, but TO-15205b is the first gas giant to be found around a low-mass M-dwarf star. The researchers compared the planet to a pea going around a lemon. In our solar system, Jupiter could be compared to a pea orbiting a grapefruit, which would represent our sun. Now, in TO-15205b crosses in front of its star during orbit, the planet blocks 7% of the light. The discovery of the planetary system challenges theories on planet formation. Stars form from massive clouds of gas and dust in space. The leftover material from star formation swirls around the star and creates a rotating disk where planets are born. In the beginning, if there isn't enough rocky material in the disk to form the initial core, then one cannot form a gas giant planet. 
and at the end, if the disk evaporates away before the massive core is formed, then one cannot form a gas giant planet. And yet, TO-15205b formed despite these guardrails, based on our nominal current understanding of planet formation. The planet should not exist, so therefore they are calling it a forbidden planet. By the way, if you're interested in having some cool science knowledge thrown at you every day on social media as you're scrolling along your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, if you want to see some random science factoids thrown at you, you can follow me on social media, facebook.com slash science animated or twitter.com slash science animated. I'm always posting some delicious science content on those social media channels. This next story is from fizz.org. Measurement of bacteria levels shows high amounts of dog feces on New York City sidewalks. A pair of natural science researchers from Marymount Manhattan College has found that high levels of dog feces landing on sidewalks in New York City has resulted in high levels of bacteria in homes and businesses. In their paper published in the journal Indoor and Built Environment, Alexandra Leary and Majorn Khan described collecting and testing environmental samples from a large number of sites on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Enterococci are a type of bacteria found in the intestines and fecal matter of most animals. They can also make their way into the environment during defecation and are known to persist on many materials such as cement, carpeting, and other flooring material. In this new effort, Leary and Khan have attempted to measure the amount of dog excrement landing on public sidewalks in New York City, and the degree to which the bacteria it carries may be making its way into homes, businesses, and other public buildings. To make their assessment, the researchers used pipettes to collect rainwater samples from public sidewalks and sticky tape to collect samples from floors and carpets in buildings. They also tested the soles of shoes of multiple volunteers using a sterile water rinse. All of the examples were cultured in a lab to engrudel levels that could be observed under a microscope. Each was then studied to determine enterococci levels. The researchers found that levels in the rainwater samples were on average of 31,000 per 100 milliliters. They noticed that the U.S. EPA has set a safe limit of 110 per 100 milliliters for public beaches as a way to compare levels. They also found that the number of bacteria found inside buildings carried on the soles of people's shoes was relative to the amount of traffic. As expected, they found more enterococci in carpeting than on flooring. They also found high levels on shoe soles, suggesting that they are the main transport vehicle. Aha! So when you tell people to take their shoes off before they come into your house, now you have a bit of research to back up why you would like them to do such a thing. And some people really hate that. Here's some research to prove that you're not being a neat freak making people do that. Although, like I said, a lot of people detest taking their shoes off when they go into somebody's home. But I feel like it's a show of respect. And now here you can see from fizz.org that there's a really good reason to do so. My next story is about the topic of time. Time is something that no matter how wealthy someone is, they cannot get more of. <laughs> of course, we're working on that in the scientific community. Getting more time, having more time, that is something that everyone would love to have. So whenever we talk about time travel in a serious manner, and 
when I've listened to Professor Michio Kaku or Neil deGrasse Tyson or any of these scientific minds about time, it seems like, well, of course, we always go, we can always travel into the future because we're doing that normally every day, every second of every day. Check out this next news bit. Could humans use black holes to time travel? This from Life Science. Black holes form natural time machines that allow travel to both the past and the future, but don't expect to be visiting dinosaurs anytime soon. Now, black holes form natural time machines. At present, we don't have spacecraft that could get us anywhere near a black hole. But even leaving that small detail aside, attempting to travel into the past using a black hole might be the last thing you ever do. A black hole is an extremely massive object that is typically formed when a dying star collapses in on itself. Like planets and stars, black holes have gravitational fields around them. A gravitational field is what keeps us stuck with the Earth and what keeps Earth revolving around the Sun. As a rule of thumb, the more massive an object is, the stronger its gravitational field. Earth's gravitational field makes it extremely difficult to get to space. That's why we build rockets, while we have to travel very fast to break out of Earth's gravity. The gravitational field of a black hole is so strong that even light can't escape it. That's impressive, since light is the fastest thing known to science. Incidentally, that's why black holes are black. We can't, ba we can't bounce light off a black hole the way we might bounce a flashlight's beam off a tree in the dark. Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity tells us matter and energy have a curious effect on the universe. Matter and energy bend and stretch space. The more massive an object is, the more space is stretched and bent around it. A massive object creates a valley in space. When objects come near, they fall into the valley. That's why when you get close enough to any massive object, including a black hole, you'll fall towards it. It's also why light can't escape a black hole. The sides of the valley are so steep that light isn't going fast enough to climb out. The valley created by a black hole gets steeper and steeper as you approach it from a distance. The point at which it gets so steep that light can't escape is called the event horizon. Event horizons just aren't interesting for would-be time travelers. They're also interesting for philosophers because they have implications for how we understand the nature of time. When space is stretched, so is time. A clock that is near a massive object will tick slower than one that is near a much less massive object. A clock near a black hole will tick very slowly compared to one on Earth. One year near a black hole could mean 80 years on Earth, as you may have seen illustrated in the movie Interstellar. In this way, black holes can be used to travel to the future. If you want to jump into the future of Earth, simply fly near a black hole and then return to Earth. But if you get close enough to the center of the black hole, your clock will tick slower but you should still be able to escape so long as you don't cross the event horizon. Now, what about the past? This is where things get very interesting. A black hole bends time so much that it can wrap back on itself. Imagine taking a sheet of paper and joining the two ends to form a loop. That's what a black hole seems to do to time. This creates a natural time machine. If you could somehow get into the loop, which physicists call a closed time-like curve, you would find yourself on a trajectory 
through space that starts in the future and ends in the past. Inside the loop, you would also find that cause and effect get hard to untangle. Things that are in the past cause things to happen in the future, which in turn cause things to happen in the past. <laughs> so you've found the black hole and you want to use your trusty spaceship to go back and visit the dinosaurs. Good luck. There are three problems. First, you can only travel into the black hole's past. That means if the black hole was created after the dinosaurs died out, then you won't be able to go back far enough. Second, you probably have to cross the event horizon to get into the loop. This means that to get out of the loop at a particular time in the past, you need to exit the event horizon. That means traveling faster than light, which we're pretty sure is impossible. And third, and probably worst of all, you and your ship would undergo spaghettification. Now, as you cross the event horizon, you would be stretched flat like a noodle. In fact, you'd probably be stretched so thin that you'd be a string of atoms spiraling into the void. Now, while it's fun to think about the time-warping properties of black holes, for this foreseeable future, that visit to the dinosaurs will have to stay in the realm of fantasy. And I've heard about this spaghettification before. Talk about an extremely painful thing to undergo, where an object is stretched to where the atoms, the individual atoms, are lined up in a perfect line. That's what ultimately happens to an object that falls into that. It is so hard for us to wrap our heads around something so un unbelievable. So this isn't quite as attractive as the DeLorean from Back to the Future. It would work to go back in time. It just sounds a little on the risky side. The following from Live Science lab-grown mini-brains will be used as biological hardware to create new biocomputers, scientists propose. A new proposal suggests using stem cell-derived mini-brains to create brand new biocomputers. Such organoid computers could be far off, but ethical questions abound. Lab-grown mini-brains could someday be linked together to act as powerful and effective biocomputers scientists have suggested. In a proposal published February 28th in the journal Frontiers in Space, a multidisciplinary group of researchers outlined their plans to transform 3D clumps of human brain cells called brain organoids into biological hardware capable of advanced comp computational tasks, a field they have named Organoid Intelligence, or OI. While silicone-based computers are certainly better with numbers, brains are better at learning. Corresponding author John Hartung, a professor of microbiology at John Hopkins University, said in a statement, For example, AlphaGo, the AI that beat the world's top Go player in 2017, was trained on data from 160,000 games. A person would have to play five hours for more than 175 years to experience these many games. Brain organoids are small lab-dish-dwelling clumps of stem cells that have been cajoyed into 3D structures that mimic the structure and function of the human brain, but are simpler than the full-size organ. As organoids share many of the cell types that enable our own brains to acquire and store information, the researchers say that the brain blobs are uniquely suited for computational tasks that require them to learn quickly and without much energy expenditure before storing the information away in compact neural connections. Brains have an amazing capacity to store information, estimated at 2,500 terabytes, Hortung said. 
we're researching the physical limits of silicon computers because we cannot pack more transistors into a tiny chip. But the brain is wired completely differently, with about 100 billion neurons linked through more than 1,015 connection points. That's an enormous power difference compared to our current technology. That was from Live Science. This could be the next step in computational storage. How crazy is that? Mimicking our own human brain to store more data. Until next time, folks, be safe and stay curious. This is Chuck Shazer of The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net. I'll see you next time, everybody. Yeah.